Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Givan of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with journalist Vincent Bevins, a native Californian. Bevins attended UC Berkeley before he began his career as an international correspondent. He worked for the Financial Times in London, covered Brazil in the Southern Cone for the Los Angeles Times, and then moved to Jakarta, where he reported on Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. He is currently speaking to us from Sao Paulo, Brazil, about his new book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World, published by Public Affairs in 2020. And an excerpt of this has re- appeared in a recent issue of the New York Review of Books. Vincent Bevins, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much for having me. So it's, it's really an honor for me to have you on the podcast uh, for several reasons. The Jakarta Method, first off, is really an excellent book. Second, you're the first journalist I've had the opportunity of interviewing, and that's a, that's a fun treat. And even more importantly, your book deserves high praise for linking the overthrow of Sukarno, uh, one of the great leaders of 1960s-era third-worldism, the rise of Suharto, one of the great examples of brutal and corrupt dictators, and the slaughter of half a million to a million Indonesians allegedly linked to the Indonesian Communist Party, known as the PKI. And you link that history to the Latin American dirty wars, including Brazil, Chile, Argentina, and Central America. This is a major achievement and something that very few scholars have been able to do. I will very, very, very humbly note that I recently published a very short piece uh, for the World History Association's special volume on the history and legacy of 1968. And it was a piece about the destruction of the PKI. And one of the points I made towards the end was... um, that the overthrow of Allende by Pinochet in Chile was called Operation Jakarta. And I wanted to get this global uh, impact there. But you take this history of Indonesia, 1965, much further and persuasively prove that it was an event of truly global significance. And I'm simply delighted to see this argument in print. Now, also, it's fun to have you on the podcast because on a personal note, as a teenage surfer in Honolulu in the early 1980s, who was interested in Indonesia because of surfing. Uh, it was my discovery of the history of Gestapo, the uh, Sukarno Suharto, and the mass murder of the PKI that led me to become a historian. While I spent most of my career working on colonial Vietnam, I'm now returning to working on the legacy of 1965 and especially public memory. And I've been really fortunate that as I return to this history, there's this growing body of schol- scholarly work of what some people call a political genocide and what a 1968 CIA report called one of the worst mass murders of the 20th century. Now, your book, The Jakarta Method, is a much-needed and very welcome globalization of this history. So I'm thrilled to see your book getting such high-profile attention from the New York Review of Books all the way to the podcast Chopo Trap House. Now, before we get into the book itself, could you please tell us a a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The Jakarta Method? Yeah, yeah, and thank you so much for, for that introduction. Um, as you said, most of my professional career has been as a foreign correspondent for the mainstream English language media, um, primarily here in Brazil. I was here from 2010 to 2016, covering basically the implosion of, wasn't the intention, but I ended up covering the implosion of the Workers' Party uh, and its social, Demo- uh, social democratic project um, here um, and the reemergence of a kind of a far right politics. Um, again, um, 
coincidentally, I, I it, it just happened that I, my next gig was in Southeast Asia. Um, this I didn't go there looking to um, tell a story about U.S. Empire or to or with any sort of agenda in mind. It was just a um, the next the next gig. But when I got there to um, Jakarta in early 2017, I found that this story of the mass murder of approximately one million innocent, innocent civilians in 1965 was simply everywhere I looked, right? Like every story I was doing, it was just below the surface, if not right there staring you in the face. And, and when I would talk about this massacre to people back in the United States or back in the Western Hemisphere, I was, re- was really shocked at the extent to which people really didn't know about it and were very interested to hear more. And when I realized that there were these links to countries that I knew well and where I knew the languages, um, Brazil and Chile, I thought that this could be something, this could be a way that I might be able to add to the important work that scholars had, had already done as a way of recasting this as a really global story that, uh, that I thought that regular people certainly needed to hear. And, and, it was, and it was, you know, luck or coincidence or just um, those sort of, sort of personal mistakes that ended up uh, pointing me in this direction. And, but it came directly out of that, of that work as a, as a foreign correspondent. I came to the book sort of with the, the same approach that I had in my work as a foreign correspondent, trying to aim at a, a general population and trying to sum things up in a, in a way that regular people could hopefully understand. Yeah. So had you known much about Indonesia before you arrived? Very little. Um, one of the reasons, you know, I, I spoke to the Washington Post before, you know, in, in late 2016 about possible options, you know, possible routes for coverage uh, around the world. There was, you know, Southern Europe, Northern Africa. There was uh, West Africa. There was Southeast Asia. So I was drawn partially to Indonesia because it was a, such a big and, and dynamic, quote-unquote, developing country. And I only vaguely knew about 1965. I had seen the film mm-hmm. Act of Killing by Josh Oppenheimer several, several years before, but I hadn't really appreciated its significance in the 20th century. It was... Um, I kind of went there because I didn't know much about the region. I wanted to go somewhere um, where I could really uh, learn a lot and, and dive into a new story. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm sure you've encountered this with your conversations, but it's, it's truly amazing how little the general American audience knows about Indonesia. You know, this is fourth largest <laughs> country in the world, largest majority Muslim population in the world. Um, and, that it's so big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I show, I teach Southeast Asia and I show my students uh, a PowerPoint slide of the, the map of Indonesia laid out over a map of continental United States and it's wider than the United States. And this is, right. this is shocking to them. Um, yeah. And it's not just, it's not just regular Americans that don't know this. I mean, it's like editors at the world's most famous publications. Like people don't know what Indonesia is in, yeah, in the United is, States. They, they hear it and they go, oh, wait, I, Micronesia, Polynesia, what is this? Like, I'm like, no, 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 this is the largest. <laughs> I was a majority country in the world. Yeah, a, a number of years ago, I was headed off to East Timor and I told a, a very senior uh, colleague who was a, a classicist, a specialist in the Roman Empire, I was headed off to East Timor and he asked me if the Tamil Tigers were still a problem there. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. Politely explain the difference between East Timor and Sri Lanka. (laughs) Yeah, no, people have very, very little idea of this. And I, I mean, not to be, you know, I avoid being conspiratorial, hopefully in the book, but one of the reasons I speculate that this is the case is because what happened there is so horrible and it so violently contradicts the American um, mainstream idea of what the Cold War was and, and, and how it was fought. 
Yeah. And, and we'll get into this in a, in a few minutes, but the, the sort of a lack of attention to Indonesia on the global stage uh, after uh, Suharto comes to power is really in sharp contrast to what Sukarno's project was, but we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. So you, um, the audience for this book, you, I think you mentioned is really for a general readership. Yeah, I think that, I think that was the only way that I could um, sort of responsibly try to tell the story. Like, I mean, as you know, well, um, American and Indonesian and Australian and European academics have done heroic work, sort of slowly piecing the story together. And, and they did the the work in many ways of, of, of proving the bones of, of the story that I tell. Um, but what I thought was not, that did not exist was a way to sort of, you know, get your regular person back in the U.S. or, you know, teenager in Indonesia itself to, to, to understand the significance of this. So I really wanted to come at it in a way that, but that was, you know, that honored what my skills were and what they were not, first of all. And, 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 um, and for better words, that's what I know how to do, right? Like I, all my training in is, is in taking a complex uh, set of uh, events and, you know, pre-existing literature and turning it into a shorter piece for a newspaper or magazine that people can read. So I just, I came at it with the exact same skills that I mm-hmm. had. Yeah, and, and I, I think scholars will benefit from, have, this, really. from this book as well. I mean, I mean, it was, it was. I mean, I've, you know, been working on this stuff for years, but it was really eye-opening to see you globalize it and really make the connections uh, around the world. And even even the section on China, I thought was fantastic. So, in terms of just a synthetic work, it is it is really a great contribution to the scholarship. Um, so. As I, as I said, uh, the Jakarta Method links Indonesia to Brazil, Chile, and other sort of hot battles of, the, of Cold War Latin America. But let's start with Indonesia, because it's, it's really at the center of the story. Um, so first off, tell us about Indonesia in the 1950s and the 1960s, and why Sukarno, Indonesia's first president, really sort of Sukarno's, uh, Indonesia's founding father, why was he such an important figure in Indonesia and internationally? Yeah, so Indonesia, as, as probably your listeners will know, are the thousands of islands that make up the former Dutch colonies in Asia. And in the late later decades of Dutch direct colonial rule, Sukarno, this very um, big thinking um, kind of prophet of, of anti-colonial Indonesian identity, comes up in a milieu in which the leftists and the Muslims and the anti-colonial and nationalists are all working together hand in hand um, uh, against the Dutch. You know, the, the enemy of the, the white colonizers so brings together uh, elements that, you know, in a way that might be familiar to listeners. You know, when you have a big enemy, everyone comes together. And, and Sukarno very much comes up in this milieu and, and gives voice to sort of Indonesian identity. So when Indonesia is founded as a country, it is very much founded as an anti-imperialist, left-leaning syncretistic pluralistic nation and it must be so i mean you could you could have never insisted on a on a single vision of indonesian identity with so many so many islands and ethnicities and languages and religions and it's, it's 17,000 islands um i joke with my students that it's uh, at low tide it's 18,000 um no exactly, and, exactly uh, yeah. some 350 thereabouts different languages not dialects yes. so it's yes, an incredibly and- diverse place and, and the, as I put out in the book, the, the, the forging of this Indonesian identity through anti-colonial struggle, through finding the things that, that the country has in common, I mean, unity and diversity, as you know, the, the, one of the founding slogans, 
this is a much more successful nation building than occurred in much of Southeast Asia. Other Southeast Asian nations still struggle to have a unifying language or identity, right? So this 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 project that Sukarno led in the first years of the post-World War II period was at the center of what came to be known the Third World Movement. Um, and from 1945 to 1955, Sukarno oversaw a multi-party democracy um, with the inclusion of the Indonesian Communist Party, the inclusion of Muslim parties, the inclusion of, of a wide range of political persuasions. But it is really in 1955 uh, at the Bandung Conference, the uh, Afro-Asian People's Conference organized in Indonesia, that he really steps onto the world stage as the one of the founding members and one of the most eloquent um, proponents of something called the Third World Movement, which is to bring together all of the peoples of the post-colonial world, especially in Asia and Africa, and really take their rightful place alongside the first and second world, the first world being the former um, imperial nations in the in the, the white North Atlantic, and Japan, I think, usually should be included, and the second world, the Soviet-aligned communist nations. And this was a, you know, despite the way that third world has taken on derogatory connotations in the decades since, largely because of the racism of people speaking the English language in that period, the Third World Project was a very optimistic, forward-thinking, inspiring, self-conscious movement to bring together the peoples of, of the formerly colonized world and to take the rightful place alongside um, white countries, alongside uh, the other established powers. And um, to tell this book, I, to tell the story in this book, I, I interviewed lots of people that lived through the main events of, of, of the story. And sort of the most moving part of this process of interviewing them may have been hearing them talk about in the 40s and 50s what they thought the future was going to be like you know when i sat down with them when you could see you could see like behind their eyes just a world opened up of what they expected the rest of the 20th century would be like as the third world movement took its rightful place um in in world history and, and sukarno was uh one of the prophets of this of this of this project and um, but it's but it's a divided country. I mean, yes. there, there's tensions. Could you talk about some of these tensions in in Sukarno's role as sort of balancing these different forces? Yes, exactly. So in the in the Sukarno comes up in the 20s and 30s, always sort of playing this role of mediator and syncretist, um, working with the left and the right. You know, in 1926, I think it is, he writes a, a, an article called Islam, Islam, Nationalism, and Marxism claiming that there can be a unity. Uh, and, and he's always the, the guy that is friends with everybody and always um, uh, plays, plays forces off of each other and, 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 and combines them um, to walk this very difficult line between uh, all of the ways that a, a post-colonial nation could go. And in, in 1948, there is a clash between the, sort of the relatively right-wing forces in the anti-colonial independence movement and the left-wing forces. Um, there's something called the Madun Affair, which which sees the left wing of the Indian independence movement crushed and the, the leader of the Communist Party executed. After that, the Communist Party is reconstituted under new leadership, which is dedicated to nonviolent electoral participation in this in the young nation led by Sukarno. Um, and then as the 50s go on, there are those in the country and, and in Washington as well, which are very alarmed by the fact that the Indian Communist Party does well with precisely this um, moderate, unarmed uh, electoral approach. Yeah, they're, and, they're, just to, to interrupt there, I mean, they're, they're definitely not the Viet Minh at this point, right? They're, no, no, do no. They do not have a military wing. They're standing for election. Um, 
Adit, the new the new leader, this young sort of yes. vibrant character, had a, was a, a peaceful strategy to power. Yeah, and this this had its deep roots in the Indonesian Communist Party itself. I mean, the Indonesian Communist Party was the first founded in Asia, um, and in the twenties, it's you know it was a, a two you know it was a two stage uh, party in the old Marxist parlance, which meant they always believed that you had to collaborate with bourgeois forces, construct capitalism, do capitalism for a long time, several decades, and then that would lead to communism. There was never socialism first. There was never any ideology which would have allowed them to say we should take up arms and grab the state and, and do this now. Um, and that strategy back in the 20s was so successful that Mao was actually directed to copy it. It didn't work out in China, but this was a very old school approach to, to quote-unquote revolution. And um, in, in the 50s, the United States notices these two things, right? So the United States, which has just overseen the quote-unquote successful uh, overthrow of democracy in Iran in 1953 and then Guatemala in 1954, um, has previously seen Sukarno's anti-imperial left-leaning project as something that could be tolerated. But with the increasing uh, success of the Communist Party and with the very vocal leadership of this third world movement, uh, the CIA takes a, uh, a very active uh, role in Indonesia. And they, they completely switch their... their um, position to one of, from one of tolerance to one of active confrontation. Right. And, and so what, what was the opposition? I mean, Sukarno's this, you know, this plays the role of this sort of balancing act and the, the really cheesy cliche and, you know, card carrying Indonesian is sort of not supposed to say this anymore, but he was the, right. the puppet master, the, 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 yeah, yeah, of, yeah. the of the Indonesian shadow puppets, the Wayang Kulit. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's actually a pretty good metaphor. I mean, he's balancing right. the communist party against uh, what forces on the right. Yeah, so there are there are forces that are outside, and this becomes a, a bigger issue in the late fifties. But there are forces that are outside of Java and believe that they that their region should have more economic power over this new country. There are there are the divisions within Islam itself. There are the more syncretistic Javanese uh, Muslims versus the more hardline Islamist or Islamist-ish forces, which um, really do not like the direction that Sukarno is taking the country. Um, and then there's the military itself, which you know played a very strong role in the uh, in from 1945 to 1949, and, our, and our always has a, a sort of a, a large uh, a large role in the country itself. I mean, there is, and so the parliamentary democracy, um, as you rightly point out, is very unstable, right? So even even before the actual CIA bombing campaign, which we'll get to in 1958. It's very, it's a, it's, it's, it's constant crisis within this young parliamentary democracy. It's, it's very hard for him to maintain control. Um, the cabinet is, the, the ways that the cabinet is being is shifting really upsets people in the, either in the quote unquote outer islands or right wing forces closer to Indonesia. It's, it's, it's very difficult to, I mean, in ways what you would expect of any young nation, but it is, it is a very difficult balancing act. Uh, mm-hmm this quote-unquote puppet master is, is, is sitting, sit, sitting we're, not, we're not supposed to use that one, but... <laughs> well, they use, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the thing where, you know, within, they, you're also not supposed to say that the Javanese are, are uh, in, inherently or culturally non-confrontational, but it's also something that everyone in Indonesia says about the Javanese, <laughs> if they're not Javanese. So it's hard yeah. to say whether it's a yeah. stereotype from outside or if it's a sort of... Yeah. Yeah. And, and in, in the 50s and into the 60s, I mean, it, there's these ideological conflicts, but there's also some real world material conflicts. Um, many of the leaders of Islamic groups and also increasing the army have an economic interest 
as landowners, as uh, running plantations, as um, former Dutch businesses are nationalized, um, army generals get their fingers in there. And so any sort of labor activism or the campaign for land reform and the PKI pushes forward uh, the implementation of laws that are on the books for land reform and that yes. which local figures are trying to resist. So that Sukarno so sort of balancing these two. Now, when most Americans think about Cold War Southeast Asia, they think about Vietnam, right? For obvious reasons, for obvious reasons. But you argue, and, and you've got some just really excellent quotes from political figures at the time, you argue that Indonesia was actually much more important to American policymakers at this time. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's um, actually, uh, uh, can't really be disputed that it was more important to them. I mean, in Bradley Simpson's book, Economist, Economist with Guns, he establishes pretty clearly that to the people that really mattered in the U.S. foreign policy establishment in the early 60s, it was widely understood that Indonesia was more important than Vietnam, and you can understand why. It's a much larger country. Um, it has natural resources. It's playing this this role in the global third world movement. It's... Um, I think that's pretty important. That it controls not, the waterways between the Indian Ocean Basin and the South China Sea and onto the Pacific. I mean, just exactly. You know, old school geopolitical standpoint, it's mm-hmm. important. And and so I think that's not really just. I can't. I think that's not really uh, something you you can dispute that the that Washington, um, as an entity uh, symbolically, thought it was more important. But the, I make the the stronger claim, which is you know I think you could we could argue about that. The, the flip from Indonesia, the Indonesia's flip from being a left-leaning anti-imperial sort of troublemaker on the, for U.S. hegemony to a quiet, compliant partner of Washington is one of the most important victories for the West in the Cold War, if not the most important victory. Um, and this is something that we could, we could talk about, but certainly compared to Vietnam, where there was no victory at all. I mean, at best, you could say that the United States made it clear to its potential enemies that we're not going to, we're going to make it very difficult for you if you, if you, if you try to oppose um, U.S. hegemony. In, in Indonesia, this was a clear, unambiguous victory, and, and I'm sure we'll get to this later. This was such an ambiguous victory for other right-wing movements around the world and other potential allies of Washington. That they realized that they could do something very similar in order to establish their own version of uh, authoritarian capitalist. Yeah. I've, I've found it useful to think about the, uh, uh, the end of the American war in Vietnam is sort of the United States cauterizing a communist wound. Like it, it's awful. It's still there, but it's burned and stopped really right. painful process, but it's stopped. Right. Uh, whereas um, this is, uh, you know, as you said, a, a complete flipping, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So um, as the United States, you know, recognizes that Indonesia is really this key uh, domino um in the uh, in the the domino theory, what do they do to influence Indonesia? There's a variety of strategies, some very serious and some tragic and violent. And there's one you include in the book that is just so patently absurd that we we yeah. have to mention it. Yeah, of course, the famous, we'll go, the famous we'll movie and the yeah, the famous porno porno film. Yeah. Um, so I think for a lot of people that find it surprising that the United States would end up participating um, in a mass murder program. Uh, it's easy, it's, it helps to understand that this was not sort of the first choice, right? There was a, a wide range of things that they tried first. And the first thing they tried was just to give money to a conservative Muslim party called Masumi. They thought, you know, as, as worked in many other countries around the world, if you pumped enough money into the 
safely moderate or conservative um, political uh, group in that country, then the Communist Party would be stopped. But they were not stopped. And, and we know this, we know now from the classified files that the U.S. officials overseeing this, including Vice President Nixon at the time, knew very well that the reason the communists were winning more and more was because they were just doing a better job of, of outreach to the people. They weren't tricking anyone. They weren't using force. They knew that the communists were winning the elections fair and square, which was a big problem. Um, the dates on the next couple events are not quite clear, but we know that at some point the CIA discussed the assassination of Sukarno and even came up with the person that would carry that out. Um, they admitted this later in 1975. Um, we know that they hired Bing Crosby in Los Angeles <laughs> uh, to produce what would be what they would they, what they planned to present to the world as a sex tape demonstrating that Sukarno had slept with a Russian KGB agent and was thus under the thumb of Moscow. So they, they wanted to produce some sort of, you know, the, the film would have shown enough of a, of a some, someone looking like Sukarno and someone looking like a Russian in a hotel room that they could claim under this, we've, this is uh, evidence that Sukarno is not only, you know, a bad Muslim and a traitor to the nation and you know, morally repugnant, uh, he is under the direct thumb of Moscow. He got, now, he this got, he got caught in a honeypot. Is exactly. I mean, and to use the language that became very popular in 2017 and 2018, they wanted to say that the, the Moscow had compromised on him, right? Yeah. That he was, yeah. uh, that he had been, yeah, that, you know, they, they could blackmail him into doing whatever they wanted. Uh, this was never released, um, not because they realized that this was a morally repugnant thing to do to try to smear the, the, the reputation of the founding father of a young nation, but because it, it just it didn't look good enough. They couldn't get the, the hair and makeup right. The, and then the, 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 the movie itself was bad. Right. Yeah, the movie. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, we only we have a couple secondhand accounts of this to the point where I'm quite confident that it really happened. And and the 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 what comes out of their accounts is that it was just not quite. They weren't they weren't sure it was going to work. Yeah, and, and and most of the Indonesians that I've actually talked to about this, both scholars and just uh, and friends in Indonesia, uh, both men and women, their take on it was that. A leaked sex tape of Sukarno probably wouldn't have been detrimental to his political capital at the time. No, exactly. if anything, if anything, it it might have helped. And there's a there's a famous photograph of him and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And he is clearly checking her out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this played so well in Indonesia because here is the leader of the third world movement checking out, you know, flirting with the great American sex symbol. This is a way for Indonesians, particularly Indonesian men, and a lot of this is very gendered to, to sort of you know uh, put themselves into this, and it made Indonesians feel good about themselves that they were now being, they they were now on a level with the white nations of the world. Yeah, and, and sort of that 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 bizarre sort of tidbit speaks to important um, important points about the nature of the CIA, this new spy agency spy agency founded by this Protestant puritanical country in North America that was taking over control of the world for the first time ever is that these guys that were in the CIA, they were sort of blue blood Northeast guys that um, were came from a very specific cultural milieu and did not understand much of the world outside of like Britain and France. They really, they projected their own ideas of more of morality and Christianity onto the rest of the world. And they often got really wrong what Indonesians would have thought about this. And um, yeah, yeah. I think it's important to, rem- to, to recognize how weird the United States sort of is as a country. You know, it's, you know, American 
American hegemony is so obvious now and it's been so natural for so long. But when I, when I talk to Indonesians looking at the United States from Indonesia in the 50s and 60s, they recognized it as a weird place. It was, the kind, you know, <laughs> this is a place where the, you know, the white settlers were not expelled. They ended up destroying the entire native population. They're, they clearly are a racist country. They clearly are very sort of um, believe in their own superiority. They, you know, this is something that comes natural now because everybody knows about, you know, we're both Americans, you know, we're understands Americanness, but at the time this is you know the CIA was weird and they didn't really get what Indonesia was about yeah yeah and and then in 1958 as you know um, the CIA ends up actively actively supporting a um, a series of they're called regional rebellions against the central government in Jakarta but what this meant um, ultimately was that American pilots were dropping bombs on on Indonesian islands and um, this this these regional rebellions emerge out of those conflicts that we just discussed the economic issues the issues of the outer islands and, you know parts of Sumatra being opposed to certain turns that the Jakarta government has taken but in the end it, you know uh, American pilots are caught one very specifically named Alan Pope is caught red-handed as he crash uh, crash lands on the island of Ambon um, a few days after um, a bombing campaign killed Indonesian civilians. So the people in the Indonesian, on the Indonesian left, the people in, in Indonesia that had been claiming for years, hey, I think the United States is untrustworthy. I think they're trying to destroy our country are all proved right. And if you look at the memoirs of Howard Jones, who's the ambassador that takes over as this um, bombing is, is carried out, he understands very clearly that the reason that Indonesia moves to the left afterwards is because of this sort of betrayal. And he, and he, and he even says, I understand why they would move away from us after that. You know, we made it impossible for them to work with us. And so they moved closer to the Soviet Union and they became more loudly anti loudly anti-imperialist after after that CIA invasion. It was uh, uh correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the largest CIA operation ever up into that point. And it was it was based on the success in Guatemala. And unlike Guatemala and Iran, it was a total failure. And so the United States weren't policy establishment sort of with its tail between its legs regrouped and came up with a new strategy to engage with uh with indonesia right so what was this new policy rather than trying to you know bomb and and use psyops to overthrow did they actually tried to win someone over within indonesia correct exactly and this is and this is something that howard jones that ambassador i mean who knows how much credit you want to give him because he you know he claims credit for this but he says that he's telling the people back in washington that it just makes more sense to work with the Indonesian military. And this is exactly what happens. Thousands of um, officers are brought to Kansas to be trained by the U.S. military. They're uh, paid very well. They, uh, From all accounts, they have very nice lives out there. They have a lot of fun in Kansas. Um, one of the uh, people that I spent the most time interviewing for this book was out there as well. He was training as an economist at the University of Kansas, but he got to hang out with these military officers. And, and it was his understanding that they were being paid very well to be trained in sort of pro-American, anti-communist, um, military-led modernization theory, the idea that that the goal was to form a country like the United States, because that was the best one, and the military had a big role to play. And as you pointed out, there was already quite substantial military control of the economy in Indonesia, not only because of the expulsion of the Dutch in 1957, and because of the huge role that they took in fighting the CIA and the regional rebellions in 1958, but then in Kansas, they learned, okay, the United States is our friends now. And the military really has a role to play in the, in the post-colonial world, um, a much larger role than just being the military. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Until they start winning over this, uh, this uh, 
this core group of officers. And one of the things I recently, I recently interviewed uh, John Rusa and one of the things that he okay. really stressed in, in the interview and in his uh, new book, uh, Buried Histories, um, which is also on a podcast here on new books, check it out um, listeners uh, was the, the structure of the Indonesian army and they had these regional commands and the country is divided right. up so that there was um, each, each of these uh, provinces had a, uh, uh, army officers stationed there within the country, looking inward, not looking outward. And um, he said it was more than just sort of a shadow administration, but it was really sort of a parallel administration of right. military administration paralleling the um, the civilians. And so he actually talks about it as a sort of a Grumpian strategy of, of building hegemony uh, within yeah. Indonesia. And um, that the again, the army is looking inward and not looking outward to defend the, defend the borders. So they, so they, they, the U.S. starts to fund and train, indoctrinate, and and, and forge personal relationships with the, the Indonesian um, officer corps. So, um, what happens in sixty five, sixty six? I mean, this is a this is a huge story. But quickly, what's what's the turning point that becomes what uh, what you start to call uh, what you call the Jakarta method? Yeah. So. Um Two things happened which caused the United States to abandon this um, um, tentative partnership with Sukarno. One is that JFK dies and LBJ um, abandoned, does not want to spend the political capital on maintaining this alliance with Sukarno. And two, Sukarno picks a fight with Great Britain over the creation of Malaysia, which he correctly, um, but perhaps aggressively claims, is being created in such a way to weaken the left in Southeast Asia. And the Western powers decide this is a step too far, and they, they remove that Ambassador Howard Jones that has been working sort of to understand the deep nuances of Indonesia for a long time, and they bring in an ambassador that is well understood to be um, a regime change, a harbinger of uh, regime change. Now, we don't know exactly what they were doing behind the scenes for 1964 to 1965. Well, this, is still, this, is still de- this is still classified, and even though I called the CIA to ask them, uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't tell me, and surprisingly... But we know um, that the outcome that Western powers, especially the United States and Britain, wanted to see happen and that they were agitating towards, they were agitating to create, was a clash between the unarmed Communist Party, now 25-30% of the country, depending on how you count it, um, and the armed right-wing military, knowing very well that when you have an unarmed um, civilian party clash with the U.S.-backed military, U.S.-backed military wins. And under various mysterious circumstances, and perhaps John Russo spoke about this with you in, in the podcast, under very mysterious circumstances, and he offers one of the best theories, but it's, it's an open case, this clash does happen in the early morning of October 1st, 1965. There's a, um, something called the September 30th Movement, which uh, kidnaps, attempts to kidnap seven uh, generals in the early hours, uh, ends up kidnapping six for reasons we don't understand. Those six, those six generals end up dead. Um, and the theories as to what this really is are numerous. And I, I don't try to solve that question because I, I really just don't have the skills. And I don't think, I'm not sure the evidence exists to do so. What we know is that this is the clash that um, the U.S. wanted to happen. And when this clash happens, a general named Suharto immediately takes control of the country, ignoring direct orders from Sukarno to appoint a different leader of the armed forces. He immediately he, shuts he down. Really, he really jumps, jumps uh, the hierarchy there. I mean, he, yeah, he, no, he, 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 he suddenly he's in charge. 
Yeah, and this is an interesting thing I found in Howard Jones's um, memoirs as well, that Nasution had told Jones many, many times in a way which is, I think, reminiscent of what happens in Chile in 1970. We can get to this later. He has told Jones many times, I will never be the leader. You know, I, I refuse to allow the Indonesian armed forces to, to lead a Latin American style dictatorship in Indonesia. And even the embassy at first doesn't understand why Suhardo is in charge and it's not Nasution. Um, Nasution is the, the general that's working very closely with, Indonesia, or with the United States for a very long time. President Sukarno, um, Suharto effectively ignores Sukarno when he wants to, and, and he takes power against the direct orders of the acting president and immediately establishes control of the country and then shuts down all media, which he does not control. And he begins to spread a very powerfully well-crafted propaganda story that claims that actually this was not an officer's result revolt. Actually, what happened is this was an attempted communist coup, and that these six generals that ended up in the well killed were actually murdered by members of the Indonesian women's movement, the left, the feminist wing of the Indonesian left, and that they killed them in this horrifying Marxist tantric sex castration ritual. And this is the propaganda story that is used and spread throughout the country and used to justify the criminalization and the mass arrest and then ultimately mass murder of anybody that's on the Indonesian left. Yep. And, and this, this then launches the systematic campaign led, led by the army working with civilian mich- uh, militias that starting in Aceh, moving through central Java into East Java and Bali in the space of a year kills 500,000 a million, we don't know. Sarwa right. Eddy at one point said three and a half million, but right. he may have just been bragging. He was the, uh, right. the officer who was sort of in strategic command. We really don't know. But the, right. the point is when you're, when you're juggling hundreds of thousands of murders, something truly horrifying happened. Yeah. And I think, and, I think, yeah, go on. No. And, and, and the PKI is instantly gone. What went from us, the, one of the largest parties in the country, what, Membership of what three million? Yeah, there was three three million card carrying members yeah. that went through the sort of Leninist, um, uh, you know, they had to like really pledge allegiance. But there was twenty million more people that were in one of the affiliated organizations. And right. again, de- declassified files that we have from the UK indicate that maybe a third of the country were PKI voters would have voted PKI in an election. And this was yeah, you know, it was the largest party outside of outside of the Soviet Union in China and. Immediately, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of, of Suharto's, you know, the first half of his power grab, because he, for a long time, he exists technically on, uh, alongside Sukarno, although Sukarno's ignored um, as he sees fit. At the very beginning of this, the United States Embassy recognizes its opportunity to do what it's been trying to do for a decade, which is to crush the Indonesian left. And the CIA offers communications equipment to um, the Indonesian military. They authorize the distribution of weapons from the CIA um, station in Bangkok, but it turns out we don't know if that actually happened because it wasn't necessary. They, they came to the conclusion that they had everything they needed to get this done because, you know, you had seven years of active collaboration with the, the most powerful military on earth. And a lot of the people, and I've met a lot of the people that went into these jails and in, in, in where they're, from which their friends never came out. And a lot of people that were taken in um, 
arrested in this this mass sweep in the in the weeks and months after October first, nineteen sixty five. Went in thinking like, oh, I'm just going to give an interview. I'm going to explain myself. Uh, I've been you know I've been in this party my whole life. Like uh, we're part of the Indonesian Revolution. We're it's friends. A, with the it's military. a it's a legal it's a legal party. It's with with no guerrilla movement. And why why would it be a problem, right? Exactly. I mean, you went like often if you often you ended up in this party if you were from a certain village and you were one of the better students or if or if you were into like the arts, you know, Lekra, the culture organization put on like the best, the most fun parties in any in any uh, any in a lot of the villages in Central and Eastern Java. And so like it was possible to kill this many people. And this is a very horrifying thing to think about, but it was. The, the precise reason that it was it, it was possible to kill this many people this quickly is because they had no idea that it could happen. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if, if they were the kind of a party that the average American thinks about when they hear the word communist, it would have gone very differently. Right. They, they had no, I mean, I spoke to a couple of people that were active PKI members in central Java that said, I think that, that said that they discussed with their friends, well, maybe should we like revolt or something? Is this, is this something we should, um, fight against and they got no direction from the, the the regional party apparatus to do anything like that there was no theoretical or logistical um basis for that kind of a, a, a resistance right and so maybe two million people go into jail um one million of them stay in concentration camps or you know well into the 70s precisely or only for their political beliefs um, they did absolutely nothing wrong and as you said, maybe 500,000, maybe a million, maybe 3 million were, were killed by, under the oversight of the Indonesian military, but often actually killed by some either civilian religious group or paramilitary group or some, some, um, some, some, someone that assisted in the actual violence. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of mythology that develops around the killings. I mean, uh, um, oh, I forget the name of the journalist. Uh, John Hughes uh, wrote this Indonesian upheaval and he, in the portrait he creates and, and you touch on this as really sort of this orientalist uh, fantasy of, you know, the, Oh, these Malay people went, oh, yeah, of course, and it's no. just sort of in their soul. And, right. and it was a savage bloodletting that's, you know, the Western mind couldn't understand. I mean, really right. racist orientalist um, crap. Um, but as scholars, John Russo, Jeffrey Robinson, Jeff Melvin, uh, Manny Pullman, uh, Vanessa Hargaves, they've been, showing over the past couple of years, it really was uh, a very cold, calculated program directed by the Indonesian officer corps. And the, and the victims just aren't, aren't just rank and file PKI. I mean, there's all sorts of people that are not members of the PKI. Right. And it really uh, depends yeah, where you are geographically and yeah. who's in charge of the local. And, you know, Bhaskara Wardaya pointed this out to me very early when I was, you know, uh, in Jojo, when I was working on this, he said, look, if it was a mass, <laughs> If it were a mass, spontaneous uh, um, sort of purge, why did it move in very specific geographical patterns? Why did it, why did it target it, precisely the parts of the country where Sukarno had the strongest support? And why did it stop as soon as Sukarno was, was gone? Yeah. Was gone? Yeah. Um, and of course, Jess Melvin sort of you know, amazingly found sort of some of the receipts of, of, of the, the extent to which the Indonesian military um, directed this. And, and you know, the, 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 the two people that she points to most squarely as uh, 
the early the early sort of activators of this plan both did study in, in Kansas. Um, and again, like that that story of the oh they run amok, you know these 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 uh, these uh, these these wild people. It fits back in the exact same larger narrative that um, the the sex tape does. You know, it's this is a a country a young sort of ignorant and inherently racist country in, in North America. And it's very easy to tell itself like, oh, well out there, you know, these things happen and we don't, you know, uh, they're not like us. And so it was very easy for, you know, mainstream liberal publications to justify this um, in racist terms. Yeah, absolutely. This is the same time that um, uh, Westmoreland gave that uh, infamous interview uh, that's I think in, in the film hearts and minds where he's talking about, Oh, you know, oh, right, right, yeah. insane. You got to understand the Asiatic views of life differently. They're very fatalist, and he's right. sort of working in some sort of Orientalist stereotypes about Buddhism, and right, of and, course, and just they value life differently. Which I mean, anyway, but so yeah, this this helps to sort of rationalize that. But but again, it's, it's not just PKI members; it's it's artists and and importantly unions. The unions yes, are really crushed by this. The, um, yes. The oil workers unions in, in Greater Sumatra, the sugar plantation unions in East Java, and um, uh, you, you profile a young woman who moved from Central Java to Jakarta to work in the garment industry and just joined the the Sobsi, the union, just because that's just what you did and didn't yeah. really think anything of it, and then winds up being arrested and uh, and there's horrifying imprisonment for for years. So so. I mean, we, I can talk about this for hours and hours. I've been talking about this for years. Um, but what you do in the book that, that was just so valuable for, for me and I, th- I think for the field as a whole is you, you globalize this. Um, so the Jakarta Method takes this um, to specifically to Latin America. So let's, let's talk about Brazil. I'm, I'm no expert in Brazilian history. But in, your, in the book, you, you point out all these parallels between the Brazilian case and Indonesia. Um, could, right. you, could you talk about some of those before we start talking about Latin America as a whole? Yeah, so I make the argument that probably 64 um, in Brazil and Indonesia 65 are the most consequential. You know, that like that long year is probably the most consequential year for the establishment, the effective establishment of authoritarian capitalism in the global south. And in Brazil, things are very different um, uh, in the years before the U.S. backed coup in 1964 because the, U, the Brazil, like the United States, is a settler colony with a large formerly enslaved, uh, you know, a, a population that was enslaved, um, being sort of by definition excluded from the political project. And there was a lot of similarities between Brazil and the United States in the 60s in the sense the the president that was uh, overthrown by the U.S. backed coup in 1964 wanted to Give the vote to everybody, you know, in a in a in a way which is probably very familiar to students of U.S. history in the 1960s. And the anti-communist legends that already existed in Brazil before the U.S. really started uh, leading this Cold War charge were very sophisticated and very powerful in the Indonesia, or sorry, in the Brazilian military. So in 1935, there was a small anti-fascist group that rose up with some communist support. It was crushed. And then the president at that time used this failed uprising to justify dictatorial control. Then he, they, the, the Brazilian military made up another fake 
communist uprising out of thin air called Plano, uh, the Cohen plan, which was anti-Semitic as, as well as anti-communist, to justify further um, dictatorial consolidation in the 1930s. And then they used this myth that claimed that this one uh, real but small left-wing uprising had not had not organized itself in the normal manner of a soldiers' uprising, which was which happened all the time in early 20th century Brazilian history. The military and right-wing media claimed that actually what had happened is that they had snuck into the bedrooms of Indonesian or sorry of, of Brazilian uh, generals in the middle of the night and stabbed them in their sleep. Right, and this is a a, a very powerful and animating myth that is um, important in Brazilian politics even before the Cold War starts. And so I don't think that necessarily this was a one for one, you know, they heard it and they copied the story, but I think there are really, there are really um, powerful resonances, I think, between what happened in 64 in Brazil and what happened in Indonesia in 1965. This idea that you use the, the story that actually there was a left-wing coup of the most devious type that wanted to kill you in your bed and stab you in your sleep. And that was what was going to justify the right-wing takeover. Yeah. And it's in, in the, in Suharto, I mean, in his propaganda campaign for the next 32 years of his rule, the, the so-called new order, the image of generals being murdered in their pajamas is inescapable. Right. And they, they make this four and a half hour propaganda film. Would you, have you actually sat through the whole thing? I, I've seen the main bit. I couldn't. Okay. I like. I really like. I, I. I. I should have made myself like learn it in and out, but I. It's so hard to watch. <laughs> well, I, I, there's. I. For, I watched the three and a half hour version several times. First, I watched the two hour and forty five minute version. Then the three and a half hour version. Then someone clued me in the into the fact that the real edit was over four hours long. Right. Um, but the 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 image is this like seventies slasher horror film right. quality. Right, cinematic image of these generals and and the one little girl being murdered and bloody in their sleep, and that it, it's just astounding how much that resonates with this case that you talk about in Brazil. Yeah, and it's it's um, you know it's it's one year before, and all of these people, so all of these people would have the people responsible would have all studied uh, at the same time in Kansas. Right. So right. whether or not, you know, this was a copy, you know, because a lot of people, I mean, you, you probably know this, you probably have looked into this um, a lot more than I have, but I mean, speculation as I, I've heard is that this story that Suharto turns around and tells immediately seems so well-crafted that it, the idea, one, one strong theory is that he must've come up with this far in advance, you know, to on the fly come up with this perfectly terrifying story of, of communist midnight treachery, um, I think a lot of people have, think is probably outside of Suharto's capabilities. But who knows? Maybe it was. Maybe maybe it was just these were the kinds of anti-communist myths that were in the ether in the middle of the 20th century. Just in the United States, we have you know there's reds under the bed kind of kind mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. kind of kind of horrible mythology. And this is this this these resonances are I think are interesting. But then when we move from 1965 to 1970, 71 in, in right. Chile, it becomes very clearly an explicit. Um, and there's this, an explicit connection. The U.S.-backed right-wing militaries in Chile and Brazil are using the word Jakarta to signify mass murder. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 tell us about that. Like, how, how? I mean, you, you give uh, several amazing 
stories. Um, the interview students interviewing a, uh, a general at one point, and then and then graffiti in in Santiago. Like how how literally how do they use the word Jakarta? Yeah, Jakarta signified the mass murder of leftists. So. Um, it, as the military dictatorship um, in Brazil um, got more, so from 1964 to 1968, the military dictatorship gets much more violent, much more dictatorial, it sounds silly to say, but it, they, they become much, much more of a hard right regime. And when Salvador Allende wins the election in Chile in 1970, this is not only unacceptable to the United States, this is also unacceptable to Brazil and both U.S. and Brazilian uh, officials are collaborating with right-wing terrorists, essentially, and right-wing elements within the Indonesian military, or sorry, within the Chilean, Chilean military, to make sure that Allende cannot take power or that he is uh, overthrown when he is in power. And I think one thing that's very interesting, this is another resonance, and it's, you know, it's faint, who knows if, how, how much this has to do with what happened in Indonesia. The first plan to stop Allende is... A man named Rene Schneider, who's the head of the Chilean Armed Forces in 1970, is in a way similar to Nasution, somebody that is in his bones convinced that the military should never run the country. So Rene, Rene Schneider is what is called a constitutionalist in Chilean political terminology, which meant that he thought that the military should never run the country. It doesn't matter if Allende is a Marxist. Allende is the president. We're going to support him. The initial attempt, the first, the first botched attempt to stop Allende from taking power consists of a plan to kidnap Schneider and then blame the left. Now, this is botched because Schneider is killed, and it becomes clear that this was actually a right-wing terror uh, attack. Um, but who knows what would have happened if this would have worked, right? Maybe to this day, you know, there would be a monument in Chile to the, you know, to the victims of uh, this left-wing coup, just as there is in, 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 in Indonesia. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. But Allende takes over. He does, he does um, take office, despite the best intentions of the United States and, and Brazil. And in 1972, we and, see and, the emergence. And, and Allende is, of course, a radical Stalinist, the, the <laughs> right, right. far left. Uh, who, who, who is it? Who's Allende? Yeah, Allende um, is somebody that believes in the democratic road to socialism, right? So Chile is different than Guatemala and different than Cuba. And, and Chileans themselves in 1970 considered themselves a different type of place. They considered, they're like, you know, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't rough and tumble. This isn't the rough and tumble of the Caribbean. We're sophisticated Chile and we don't do things like that. We'll be able to transition to socialism in a very calm and elegant way. And we're going to take La Via Chilena, which is the democratic, nonviolent path to socialism. And and Allende believes that because of detente between Soviet Union and the United States, that he has the, the, the space to do this. Yeah, now, there are... There are I, was, I was being, just to listeners know, I was no, being I facetious early on. No, of course. You know, of course, of I, just course, want to make, I don't want to destroy my career. <laughs> no, of course, of course. And, so he, and, uh, fairly, fairly moderate member of the left. Absolutely. And well, we know now that this is precisely what upset and worried Richard Nixon, right? So... We, the declassified information we have on Nixon from this time, largely because of the fact that he, you know, he fell so spectacularly. Um, we don't have, we don't know as much about Kennedy and LBJ. Um, is that he, he was, his, his precise worry was that the democratic socialist, um, the possibility of a democratic socialist victory in Chile would encourage other people, right? He, 
he was the thing that he was worried about was that this would be an effective and victorious uh, 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 transition to socialism. And so, in the early during uh, the Allende administration, the right wing terror continues, and one of the major campaigns is to graffiti on the walls of Santiago, Jakarta is coming, and to send postcards to supporters of Allende and officials in the government saying Jakarta is coming, or just Jakarta. And in, in the Navy, there is discussion of something called Plan Jakarta. And anybody that's been paying attention to the Cold War at this time understands what this means. It means we're going to kill you like they killed them in Indonesia. And in Brazil, you have something, uh, this is not this is not a publicly discussed or perhaps even not even the official term for it, but in Brazil, you have something called Operação Jakarta, which was the plan to physically eliminate members of the Communist Party. And this threat in Chile that Jakarta is coming, we're going to kill you, is exactly what happens in 1973 when the CIA um, eventually succeeds in, in facilitating a coup to overthrow Allende and install Pinochet. They do kill the exact people that they've been threatening, and, and thousands of, of Chileans on the left are killed. And Brazil and Indonesia, or Brazil and Chile, come together uh, in the years afterwards to set up a international mass murder network across, active across South America to eliminate opponents to the authoritarian capitalist project um, as they understand it. Yeah, yeah, and, and just as a little side note here, um, I was a Fulbright scholar in uh, Jogjakarta in 2012, 2013, uh, teaching at UGM, one of the one of the one of the top three universities in the country, and had these absolutely brilliant American studies graduate students, and I wound up teaching a class on American imperialism, which um, I, I didn't tell the State Department at the time. Right, right, right. But you know, under the Obama years, that was fine, right? Um, and uh, I, I screened. Um, the uh, the Jack Lemmon Sissy Spacek film Missing about okay. the overthrow of Allende and it was really the discussion we had with these Indonesian graduate students um, were very careful about not quite drawing the parallels but saw right. the parallels there it was really yeah really interesting teaching moment um, yeah I mean I, I hope somebody I mean I got, actually got one email from somebody that said that they wrote a, uh, an academic paper about this years and years ago about the strange the strange similarities between the track two attempts yeah. to remove Schneider and what, what was, was, uh, you know, what ended up actually working in Indonesia. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you're supposed to go. I mean, I, when I saw these um, resonances between Brazil and, and Indonesia, between Indonesia and Chile, I like, didn't know, you know, what's the, what's the research yeah. uh, pro project? Like, how do you figure out if this could have been a transfer of sort of right-wing terror technology? It's, it's I couldn't figure out. I couldn't just prove that it was, and I couldn't figure out how to look into the possibility. But um, but you, but you seems... do, but you do talk about these international anti-communist organizations. Oh, really absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, you know, we're familiar with Comintern and ideas of international communist conspiracies and so forth. But you talk about these far-right groups that a few scholars have worked on. Um, I think uh, Scott and John Lee Anderson have a book on them, and um, and there's there's other bits and pieces here and there. But can you talk about some of these? anti-communist groups, I mean, both in Latin America, but also in Asia and their their global linkages? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kyle Burke came out with a new book on this, was the sort of successor to the, the legacy of the of um, Inside the League, the, the John Lee Anderson book. But um, yeah, as you said, it's very well known that there was international communist conspiracy or, at the, you know, co cooperation across the world. But we, for some reason, failed to make the 
connection that the right-wing groups active in the Cold War had formal organizations they were a part of. They met up, they traded tips, they traded technologies of terror, they talked to each other about what worked and what didn't. And there was a couple of um, official organizations that allowed them to do this. The first, the first anti-communist organization is something called the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, which is founded in 1946, largely composed of former Nazi sympathizers in Eastern Europe, right? And then you have the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, which was founded in 1954, bringing together South Korea, Taiwan, and the Philippines. And then you also have the Inter-American Confederation for the Defense of the Continents, a Mexican group, which facilitates the, the global, uh, the, linkage, the first linkages between Asia and Latin America. And so this is one of the ways that Brazilian and, and uh, Indonesian anti-communists or Asian anti-communists could have met before 1965. And then eventually you get the, in the founding of the World Anti-Communist League right after the, um, the violence ends in Indonesia and the U.S. is participating um, in various ways throughout its, uh, um, throughout its lifetime. And it brings together sort of a rogues gallery of the, the far right in the 20th century, uh, fascist sympathizers, uh, death squads in Central America. Some Republican congressmen are are um, there's varying levels of uh, official U.S. involvement, and then sometimes you know at certain points it, it becomes an unsavory looking organization. They back out, but there are all kinds of ways that far right movements in the 20, late 20th century and the second half of the 20th century could have been trading tips and even um, personnel. And so two, two things emerge from this, which I think are quite interesting. John Russo, John Russo pointed me in this direction to say, well, Vincent, look into the idea that 1965, 1966 in, in Indonesia was the first time that disappearances were ever used in Asia. And so I looked into this and I could not find any evidence that this happened on the scale beforehand. And then, you know, Greg Grandin, the, the great historian of the far right in Latin America, I asked him, when is the first time that disappearances happen in Latin America? Well, it's, it's months later in parts of Central and South America that um, have officials that would have been intimately, U.S. officials that would have been intimately aware of what happened in Indonesia. So again, I can't prove this, but I think it's very suggestive. It's very possible that disappearance worked so well in Indonesia in 1965-1966 that someone tells the death squads in Guatemala a few months later, oh, you should do this, and that's when it starts, and disappearances are now very famous in, in South America. And then another aspect of these international communist networks, uh, whether or not, you know, this one probably not operating through the infrastructure of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, is that the person, you know, we spent a lot of time, I worked with a great um, researcher down in Santiago, a student named Benjamin Concha, who spent a lot of time in the archives before I showed up to do the On the Guard interviews. And we came to the conclusion, we're pretty confident that the, the person that brought this metaphor, Jakarta, to... So the South American far right was a Croatian. Uh, so again, it's very possible. Yeah, I don't have the proof, but it's very plausible this would have been somebody that was in Ustasha or would have been uh, it, it conversant with members of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, this far right group that worked with uh, uh, Nazi sympathizers in Eastern Europe. And, and, and I think that's one of the main points that I want to make with the book. And, and it's not a book that makes points, but I think that that's something that arises from taking this approach is that I want it to make clear that you have to view these right-wing coups or these right-wing death squads or this, these strategy, strategies of anti-communist terror in the 20th century 
as a global phenomenon, right? These, they, 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 the, these people that are ultimately victorious in shaping the post-colonial world in the 20th century work with each other. They learn from each other. They trade tips. They, they, they meet up at conferences. They trade, they, you know, they trade personnel. Um, and a lot of these, a lot of these big turning points in the Cold War make a lot more sense if you see them in the context of the other. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the way you were able to connect this, I've said this a couple of times already, but the way you're able to connect these is just was real eye-opening and I think will be a real paradigm shift for uh, for the field. Could you say a few words on the impact of um, 65, 66 in Indonesia on uh, communist movements? Um, yeah, this the, is The really- Soviet Union was sort of meh. But uh, that you argue there was a serious impact in China and also in the jungles of eastern Cambodia. Yeah, no, this is really, I think, underappreciated. And this is something that I was really I was really surprised to find out about, but it makes so much sense, right? I mean, if you were on the left in 1965, 1965, of course you knew what the Indonesian Communist Party was. It was the largest unarmed Marxist party in human history, right? It was the lar- it was perhaps the most important democratic socialist party in human history, right? And although we completely thought about, forgot about it in the United States, they paid a lot of attention to the fact that overnight they were basically decimated by a armed right-wing military movement. And so from Chile to the Caribbean, to Cambodia, to China, to the Philippines, a lot of people came to the conclusion that there was no unarmed path to socialism. You had to become self-defensive, tightly organized, violent, and ready for the inevitable arise of the, you know, imperialist right-wing terror. And um, the ways that we we can trace this most specifically is that um, Pol Pot and the leaders of the Khmer Rouge, who at this time are still sort of operating in the jungles of Cambodia before the, the coup that overthrows Sihanouk, they come to the conclusion that they have to be armed and self-defensive. Um, I interviewed, you know, you can, he's, he's active, you know, he's still um, uh, active politically and, and online all the time. I interviewed the founder of the um, Communist Party of the Philippines, Joe Masison, and he told me, oh, yes, 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 this is, this is precisely why I decided that the Communist Party of the Philippines had to be a clandestine guerrilla armed movement rather than a mass party. We, we learned from Indonesia that it was not possible to. To, get, to take the route that the PKI had taken. The Cultural Revolution starts one year after um, the massacre of the Indonesian Communist Party. And I do not claim that it started because of this, but the mythology, and not mythology is the wrong word because it was all true. The story of what happened to the Indonesian left formed a huge basis of the discourse of the, of the Cultural Revolution. And um, historian Tao Mozu, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, Zhu. Uh, put out a book this year um, pointing to all those connections. And, mm-hmm. and, and in Chile, Mao Zedong and Aidit, the head of the PKI, had a personal relationship. They met several times. They knew each other. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They, they had was, a meeting. Was slaughtered in central Java in, I think, November 65. Exactly. Right? And, and, of course, the Indonesian military tells the world that he confessed to everything that they were claiming that he did right before he was killed. And the United States... Um, uh, puts that message out as well, knowing very well that it's a lie. We know that we know that they knew that it was a lie at the time. But yeah, Mao Mao met with Aidit a few months before, um, and they have this this conversation that is interpreted in, in different ways by different scholars. 
But what we know is that Zhu Enlai had told the Indonesian Communist Party in Sukarno previously that you had to form a people's militia. People's militia made you in, invincible. And, well, they were they ended up being very invincible, right? Um, and I, we, I don't have direct evidence of this, but it would make a lot of sense that China, the Chinese Communist Party, came to the conclusion that they had to be self-defensive and search everywhere for hidden bourgeois elements. And this is precisely the the... the the discourse of the Cultural Revolution, which starts just afterwards. And one of the, I only go into this a bit in the book, but there were, there were Indonesians that were in Beijing studying in 1965. They stuck there. They were stuck there. One man, Sarmaji, he runs a sort of an unofficial library of uh, Indonesian diaspora studies in Amsterdam. He's very old now. He lived through the Cultural Revolution and he understood very well the relationship to the Indonesian uh, the fall of the PKI, and, and also in Latin America. So I, in Chile, uh, the people of the, on the Chilean left that I spoke to for this book, they said, oh, yes, in 1965, there were heated debates on the left as to how to interpret this. And the, in the Chilean Communist Party, uh, still um, always loyal to Moscow, and, and Moscow's line towards Latin America at the time was basically don't cause trouble, um, participate in bourgeois politics, Helping the transition to capitalism will, you know, later there will be an opportunity. The, the, the Chilean Communist Party thought, okay, it's fine. But things are different here. And other, um, other people on the Chilean left said, no, no, no. The, the, the lesson from 1965 in Indonesia is that we must be armed. And the MIR is the most famous uh, group in Chile, in Chile that takes this stance that officially they don't vote in 1970 because they don't officially believe in uh, electoral politics, but they're all very excited, and a lot of them they they admit to me privately they they voted anyways for Allende. But this reverberates throughout the world, and it's so it's not only the right globally that learns from 1965. The left comes to uh, not the left, uh, you know, as a model, but many left wing movements around the world come to the conclusion that you have to be hierarchical, self defensive, and and even authoritarian. And and I think this has to be uh, this this moment needs to be reinsert, reinserted into the history of the left and. I think it's very illuminating when we look at which left movements made it through the 20th century, right? Which ones ended up actually surviving the end of the Cold War, and for better or worse. And it's, and it's not a conclusion that a lot of the people in the book liked to admit, but they came to the conclusion that the, the parties that survived ended up being the ones that got sort of hardcore, um, that took a path that they didn't really want to take themselves because they often believed in the, in the, in the softer and kinder path. Yeah, yeah. yeah um- so you've given us a lot of your time. We really appreciate it, but we need to start wrapping up now. Sure. Um, um, one question I want to ask you is a little personal. Um, you know, in, in the book, uh, you put yourself in there uh, and, you, and you have these moments of reflection on the role of the United States. So what did working on this topic mean for you? Um, uh, and what, what, what did it do for your vision of America? Yeah, I mean, I keep myself, I mean, I'm only in the introduction and the conclusion, but but I think that probably ended up hanging over the, 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 all the middle bits too. Um, it's a really good question. And, and to be like, I don't know, I'm not trying to like get out of it, but I still am trying to figure it out. What, like what, what, what the lessons are, right? Like, what does it mean? Um, and parts of this book are very psychologically difficult to go through. I mean, I made sure to really take my time. I'm sure John Russo, um, would have told you something similar, but I really made sure to take my time to do these interviews in a way which was as frictionless and, and was least likely to be traumatic as possible. But it was just even for me, just having to, to understand what really what it was. It was 
it was quite, it, it shook my core quite um, violently uh, to, to understand the ways in which, you know, and I ended up writing the book in Bali. And if you walk around Bali, you can look everywhere you look, you can see, oh, this is the consequence of what that was. I mean, why is it that these are tourist hotels rather than, you know, anything else? And why is it that, you know, well, so, some of those tourist hotels are built on uh, directly on directly on graveyards. And I, yeah, and I interviewed Adrian, one, Adrian uh, Vickers has a really great article uh, in the journal of public history about uh, where some of those sites are. Yeah. And uh, I interviewed one of the, you know, the a local sort of leader of the, of a village and uh, village leader in Seminyak, which is right, you know, like, as you know, the upscale beach resorts and he's been finding bones for, for years and giving them a proper Hindu burial. And I don't know what the real lessons are, but I know that it made me a lot more, it made me reconsider what the nature of U.S. hegemony was. And, and, and you know, this is a, this was a nice thing that I got to pretend to be a historian for a couple of years. You know, I don't, I don't have that expertise or the skill set. but a really nice thing of being able to take this really big step back and look at a global story from, you know, with a really wide, lens was to, to realize like, oh, this era of American hegemony is not that long and it's quite weird, right? Like it's only been 70 years that a, a settler colony based in North America has basically been uh, the most powerful country in history. And it isn't, didn't have to be exactly like this. And it probably won't be like this for much longer. So we should probably think very crit- critically about where its power really, where the, this system really came from and, and what possibilities uh, that understanding might open up for, for whatever comes next. Um, if I can ask you another sort of personal question, and yeah, sure. a few years ago, I was fortunate enough to interview uh, the filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, who made the right. the Active Killing and the Look of Silence. And if listeners have not seen those films, please, please, they're they're both just amazing films, both for their subject matter and as works of art. But in the, in our conversation, he noted that uh, he really can't go back to Indonesia, or he he could go, right. back, but he'd never never be able to leave. Um, and many scholars, many academics of Indonesia know that they have to be very careful with what they write about 1965 if they intend to ever get a, re- a research visa again. Um, and then, you know, for for me, reading this book this past week at a time when the president of the United States is talking about going after anti-fascists, which I would consider myself to be an anti-fascist, um, right. aren't we? Aren't we all? Um, right. But the 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 sort of these these threats of violence and, uh, and these various threats in social media it's re- really quite terrifying and, and paranoia inducing. Um, and this is also a time period where journalists around the world are um, are really under threat. And so I, I applaud this bravery. But it, was, is there any sort of danger in, in this book? I mean, you 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 mentioned a, a very chilling encounter with Jair Bolsonaro earlier in the book. Right. Um, I mean, you're 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 dredging up some dark history um, that's linked to people that are currently in power in right. Sao pa- uh, in, in Brasilia and in uh, Jakarta. Well, I I definitely wrote this book knowing that maybe I wouldn't be able to go back to Indonesia ever, and luckily that's okay. You know, I don't have you know I don't have a career that that needs to be based around that. It, I I knew that it might be the case. That all the next time I try to go do a, a book talk in Bali. Well, that's the thing is if you do, as you know, if you want to do a book talk about this kind of stuff in Indonesia, often you say that it's about something else. But uh, I, I uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. don't say the quiet I, parts out loud. <laughs> yeah, but uh, 
I mean, I, I'm, I was fully cognizant. I mean, I also, this is part of the reason I left. Once I got, once my final interviews were done, once the first draft was done in Bali and I got the last interviews from the Balinese uh, uh, um, survivors, I left the country and I knew maybe I can come back and that'll be okay. You know, I mean, uh, hopefully I can. Hopefully I can give um, give a talk at Taman Namlima in, 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 in Bali and, and hopefully that's, hopefully it's not the case, but I was a, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to throw caution to the wind because I don't need to work there again. I, I, I knew that it might be the case that I'll get stopped at the border. Now, the worst possibility is that I don't get stopped at the border and then I give the talk and then maybe an Islamist group shows up to physically attack. Some kind of a, yeah, rough, yeah. Which, which, is why, which is why I'm going to think very hard before actually organizing any book event as to what risks I might be taking for myself or, or more importantly causing for the Indonesians that might help to organize it. Because the reason, one of the reasons I decided to put myself in the book a little bit is because one of these Islamic Islamist attacks affected me and my roommate personally in 2017. They had a quite a banal conference to just discuss Indonesian history. And at, uh, uh, in downtown Jakarta, I, I went to, I went in the morning and then I left. And then that night they were attacked by anti-communist, uh, Islamists that made my friends and my former roommate very, very scared for their lives. Yeah. So um, I'm aware of the risk, but luckily, luckily it's, oh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, if I can't go back, I can't go back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, and we, you know, we do have a certain amount of boule or, uh, you know, white person privilege yes. in Indonesia, yes. but it's the, it's the Indonesians are much more, um, much more vulnerable. So, um, you know, as a historian, I was very appreciative that you acknowledged, you know, the, the great work of some of my amazing colleagues, uh, John Russo, Jeffrey Robinson, Bradley Simpson, Saskia Oringa, and others. Can you suggest to the listeners um, two other books that you really recommend uh, related to this topic, Indonesia um, or global or Latin America? I'm going to go for more than more than two. So yeah, more than two. Okay, <laughs> more than, yeah. Everyone you said read all read their books. Economists with Gun. I mean, Brad Simpson is the is the historian who really made allowed me to do this. I mean, I relied up on him very heavily personally. It was him that was who his declassifications in 2017. Yeah. He, he, he runs the national Indonesia section of the National Security Archive uh, project. Online. Exactly. His book is exactly. Economist with Guns. And Economist with Guns is the yep. book that really establishes the uh, the influence of the United States on this on this mass murder. John Russo's new book, uh, um, uh, of course, and then, of course, the classic um, uh, Pretext for Mass Murder, in which he presents his theory as to the September 30th movement. Uh, Saskia Wieringa's book on Garwani is really important. The, I mean, I think it's really underappreciated how, how this was made one of the world's largest and most significant feminist organizations, the Indonesian mm-hmm. women's movement. Um, Bhaskara Wardaya. Yeah. Yeah, and how important the misogyny was to yes. Suharto's rule. I mean, it's yes. it's it's not just anti-PKI, it's anti-women's liberation in this transition. Exactly. Girwani, I mean, Girwani to um uh Juanita Dharma, this this sort of housewife leave it to beaver image of what the Indonesian woman is supposed to be. And that's that's in the national monument and and, uh, and this is you know this. Sila. 
And this really, this this resonates really deeply with anti-communism in in here down here in South America too. I mean, the yes, yes, communists were always associated with sexual. I mean, this. I mean, Bolsonaro does this. I mean, if you go in, if I could open up my phone right now, I'm in I'm in several Bolsonarista WhatsApp groups where they just like um, send out their like their daily hate, right? They're they're the the person they're supposed to attack that day, and there's always the association of the left and sort of sexual deviancy and women that are not, women that are get too big for their 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 skirts right the, 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 it's always about um it's all and it's always you know in a way that i'm sure will be familiar to everyone especially women it was it's just it was easier to blame it on women right it would be, you know to, you use the figure of the woman's body for political purposes from exactly we see it from you know french algeria to to this yeah yeah and um, then uh, and then in brazil the one book is, oh, this is a Portuguese yes. only, but Marcos, Marcos Napolitano, Napolitano wrote a great book in 1964 about. What's, what's the, the title? 1964. Okay. Marcos Yeah, but it's Portuguese only, so maybe that's not so helpful. Oh, yeah, that, it's not I, translated I, yet? I don't think so, no, but I relied upon that a lot for, for, for the Brazilian side of the. Oh, no, so, no, this is great. They just translated Rodrigo uh, uh, Pato Samota's book. On Guard Against the Red Menace, which is a book about Brazilian anti-communism from 1935 to 1965. Okay, On Guard Against the Red Menace. Yes. Okay, I'm. I'm. I'm that's going on my list because I, yeah. I need. It's I mean, just I need, translated. Yeah. Again, I've, the the connections you made were just so eye-opening for me, and I really, really appreciate that. So, um, finally, what are you what are you working on now, and what can we hope to see from you next, and and where can we see your journalism? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. That's easy. Uh, I'm, on there, Vincent, V-I-N-N-C-E-N-T. Uh, I really liked writing this book. I mean, I've been a newspaper correspondent for like 12 years now, but I, I would really like to write another one. I can't say too much, but I'm, I'm really looking at, I'm, uh, right now, this current moment is making me reflect a lot on the long tail of the protests in 2013 here in Brazil and how they ended up leading to the exact opposite of what they asked for. And it seems like a lot of the mass protests around the world in the 2010s led to the exact opposite of what they asked for. And so I'm thinking about trying to take a look at that. And if not, I'll be in uh, probably back to London soon covering uh, the European Union response to coronavirus and trying to, trying to get someone to give me a second book contract, basically. <laughs> Great. Well, I, I look forward to that second book. So Vincent Bevins, thank you so much for your time and, and for your excellent contribution to the field. Uh, thank you so much. So this has been a conversation with Vincent Bevins about his new book, The Jakarta Method. Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World, published by Public Affairs in 2020. I'm Michael Givan of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>